Acts chapter 26. That's where we are today. If you're paying attention, you'll see that we have skipped Acts chapter 25. Not because Acts chapter 25 isn't important. But it all kind of flows together because we know that Paul has been arrested. Paul is in Caesarea, bound or imprisoned. And Paul has been there in Caesarea for over two years. And Acts chapter 25 kind of takes us from when Felix, the governor, leaves and a new governor, Festus, comes in. And Festus hears Paul's case. And, and, um, and so we come to chapter 26. And Paul is still bound here in Caesarea. Festus has come. He's the new governor. He's arrived and he's going to hear Paul's case. He goes to Jerusalem shortly after arriving in Caesarea. And the Jews uh, petition Festus to bring Paul down to Jerusalem uh, and have the trial there. And the only reason they wanted that is because, remember, there were 40 assassins two years previous who had taken a vow to have Paul killed, that they were going to not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. But they still remembered. And they saw the new governor as an opportunity to get Paul back to Jerusalem. And their plan was that they were going to murder Paul on the way, the journey from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. But Festus refuses to bring Paul up to Jerusalem and he invites them that they can go down to Caesarea. And so Paul remained bound there in Caesarea. And... Festus goes back to Caesarea and hears Paul's case. The Jews go down to Caesarea. They're all there. They hear Paul's case. Festus can't find any reason why Paul is really bound and in prison, but the charge has been made, and he's got to sort it out because that's the way the law worked. And he ask Paul, don't you want to go back to Jerusalem and make your defense and let's just get this done away? And Paul says, nope, I want to appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar and it's to Caesar who I want to go to and state my case. And so Festus says, to Caesar you appeal, so to Caesar you shall go. And so this is where we are. Acts chapter 26 picks up with Paul now having appeared before Festus. Festus says, okay, you're going to go to Caesar. But in the meantime, King Agrippa comes to Caesarea. And Festus, trying to figure out what to do with this difficult situation, because he doesn't really have any charges against Paul, goes to King Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, I want to present this case to you, and I want your your wisdom. What do I do with this guy? And King Agrippa says, I would like to hear myself from this Paul. And so Festus arranges it, and Paul is brought before King Agrippa 
to make his defense. And this is what we have presented to us in Acts chapter 26. It's Paul giving his answer before King Agrippa. So let's begin reading. I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 26 uh, in the the ninth verse. We'll uh, kind of review the first 11 verses, but I want to read verses 9 through 18. So Paul is talking to Agrippa. He's answering Agrippa. And he's given Agrippa his background. And in verse 9, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of Christ. I thank you for this record, this account of the great apostle Paul, Lord, who was in his own mind and in his own will doing your work or so he thought and yet on that fateful day God at midday you appear to him Lord Jesus brighter than the noonday sun and give him a revelation of the light the true light that has come into this world the Lord Jesus Christ and from that revelation of light Paul is changed eternally father what you did for Paul is nothing different than what you have done for men since creation. By your grace, you have taken sinful men and you have changed them and made them new creations and given them grace to trust in you. Father, I ask today that you would grant the same grace, the same faith to each one of us, that we would look to you and trust in you and see you, not with our natural eyes, but see you through eyes of faith. For that is exactly how Paul saw you. 
not just with natural vision, but he saw you through eyes of faith. Father, grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus, that we too would be changed and transformed, that we would be a people that would glorify your name in all the earth. Father, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul in the next verses goes on and he says, O king, I was obedient to this call. And so he was. What I want to, um, what I want to point out as we look at these verses, I want us to consider, though I didn't read verses 1 through 11 or 1 through 8, in verses 1 through 8, Paul begins his answer before Agrippa by um, giving, giving a thumbnail sketch of his life. He answered Agrippa and told Agrippa of his past. You know we all have a past, right? Um, some people are very conscious of their past. Some people probably don't think much about it. Um, but whether you're conscious of it or not, everyone has a past. And Paul here is allowed to make his own defense before King Agrippa. And as Paul gives his answer before Agrippa, Paul presents his past. And it's not only that we have a past. We all have a sinful past. And that is true whether we believe that or not. That is true no matter how good we think our life is. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And that sinfulness that demands a Savior has nothing to do with how good or moral or well-behaved your life is. Because you don't get saved by being moral and well-behaved. And you don't achieve salvation by living a good life. The only way we can be saved is through Jesus Christ. The only truly good work that was ever done was the good work of the cross. That is the only good work that can save men. Now we can do good works, and God prepares good works for us to walk in, the Bible teaches us. But those good works are not for us to earn our salvation, because there is no way for us to earn our salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. And unless we look to and trust in Jesus, we have no salvation. So Paul is presenting his past to King, Agrippa, to King Agrippa. We all have a past. We all have a sinful past. And here's the reality. Past, present, and future. Sin is the greatest struggle that we all face. The greatest mountain that we ever needed moved in our life was not some sickness, not some disease, not some hardship. The greatest mountain that must be moved in our life is the mountain of sin that is crushing us to death. Sin is the greatest struggle we face, and this is true for all men. And this is why Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty or accountable before God. This is what the law does. The law shows us our guilt before God. 
And the only solution to the problem of sin, any and all sin, is Jesus Christ. Paul informs King Agrippa of his background as a Jew, and specifically that he lived according to the strictest sect of their religion. He lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. He also informs us that he informed the king that he is being accused because of the hope of the resurrection. Remember these two sects, Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in the spirit. They believed in angels. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in the spirit. Many Jews today are Sadducean. There's a famous, I, I love him. I love his politics. I love his his logic and his way of thinking, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is a Jew. He's a Sadducean Jew. He believes that when you die, that's it. You just go back to the stuff you came from. But he's a, he's a Jew. But he's a Sadducee. We talked about this, remember? This is why the Sadducees were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. They had no hope beyond this life. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says if the only hope we have is in this life, then we are, all of all men, most pitiable. But the good news is our hope is not only in this life. Our hope is beyond this life. And this is one of the reasons that Paul is being accused here, because it was the Sadducees who were the ruling party, and the Sadducees didn't like Jesus. They didn't like not just that people were following Jesus, but this whole idea of a risen, resurrected Messiah. The Messiah wasn't going to come and die to begin with. He was going to come and conquer. And we can't have a Messiah who dies. We can't have a Messiah killed by the very people that he's supposed to conquer. We can't let this get out of control. If this gets out of control, it's going to disrupt all Israel. And this is why Paul is in the mess that he's in. Because he believes in the hope of the resurrection. And he believes in the hope and the salvation only in the resurrected Jesus. So Paul then in verse 9, Paul makes this statement about his past. He said, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to what he says in verse 10 and 11. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities." If you got expelled from the synagogue back in that day, that was not a good thing. Because when you were expelled from the synagogue as a Jew, you were shunned. That means it would be very difficult for you to buy, to sell, to trade, to get your basic necessities. And this is what Paul was doing. He was putting pressure on these Jews to blaspheme, to denounce Christ, to stop following this false messiah jesus of nazareth and if you don't you'll be in prison or worse you will be killed and that's what paul was doing when jesus meets him on the road but i want you to to think about this think about 
how Paul is describing his past here to King Agrippa. Paul continues telling King Agrippa of his activities persecuting the saints of God, trying to destroy this new sect following Jesus of Nazareth. And in his persecution of the church, Paul imprisoned or put to death as many as would not blaspheme the name of Jesus. He punished them often, he said, in the synagogue. And in his rage, he persecuted them even to foreign cities. In verse 11, he says, being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is who the great apostle Paul was. This is the past of Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul. We all have a past. We all have a sinful past. And the good news is Christ can redeem any past. I have had, unfortunately, more than one person tell me how they are too bad for God. That their sin is too great and God could never save them. Their sins could never be washed away. I'm just stuck a sinner, so I'm just going to make the best of it. Do you know that is the height of arrogance? That is the height of pride? There's nothing humble about that. There's nothing, uh, <laughs> there's nothing good about a statement like that. When Paul speaks of his opposition to Christ, he speaks of it in the strongest terms. He describes himself as being exceedingly enraged against those following Christ. Paul was not just in disagreement with what Jesus taught. Paul was certainly not indifferent. Well, if they want to believe that, that's fine. Let them believe that. He was more than just opposed to it. He describes himself as being exceedingly enraged. In other words, Paul describes himself literally raging as a madman against the saints of God. This is Paul's past, a raging, murdering opposer and oppressor of Christ and his church. And in spite of that past... The Lord Jesus saved Paul from not only his past, but his present and his future. There is no sin too great that the grace of God cannot cleanse through the saving blood of Jesus. To believe our sin is too great for God to forgive is the height of arrogance and rebellion against Christ. God humbled Paul in his sin, and Paul responded in repentance before God, and humble obedience to Christ. That, by the way, is how we should respond to God. That is what repentance should look like in our lives. Humble obedience to Christ. God calls us to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. So we will either humble ourselves or we will be humbled. If we are fortunate, if God is graceful, we will either humble ourselves or be humbled in this life before the judgment. 
But one way or another, one day, the scripture is plain. It is clear. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All men from all times will be humbled one day. With the preaching of the gospel, the call goes out that we humble ourselves in faith and trust and submission to God. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God can redeem any past, any present, and all of our future. It is in this context of exceeding rage that Jesus appears to Paul and gives him the revelation of light and truth that would eternally change Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the way, into Paul the apostle, the preacher of the gospel. Verse 12, Paul tells King Agrippa, while thus occupied in this rage to persecute Christians, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, while thus occupied, this is what Paul was doing when Jesus appears to him. God comes to us while we are occupied with our life's work, whether it's our entire life's work or whether it's our momentary occupation. We all occupy ourselves with things every day. We occupy ourselves with our life's work, with our dreams, with our hopes, with our visions, with the things that we, we want to achieve and we want to do. Paul wanted to serve God. Paul wanted to make sure that the truth of God prevailed, and he thought he was deceived. And he's no different than who he refers to in Romans chapter 1. He was, in fact, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness when he is on his way to do the work of God by killing and imprisoning Christians. As is often the case with us, Paul was occupied doing his work, thinking the whole time it was the Lord's work, only to find out differently when he literally sees the light and receives a revelation of Jesus Christ. That eternally changes him. It is the business of the kingdom that we are to be occupied with. We can be occupied with our professions. We have all been given gifts and callings by God. Some are gifted to work with their hands. Some are gifted to work with their minds. Some know how to write software. Some know how to fix plumbing. Some know how to build uh, beautiful structures. It doesn't matter what our calling, what our giftings are. Whatever our calling, whatever our gifting, whatever our occupation, whatever work we do, we are to be doing the work of the kingdom. We are to be occupied with the work of the kingdom. And whatever it is, we put our hands to. When Paul, when Paul was a tent maker making tents, he was occupied with the work of the kingdom. So don't get confused. We like to do this in the church. Christians like to get confused. I don't understand it, but they do. And they seem to get more confused than a lot of people do. Doing the work of the kingdom is not only done by those who stand behind a pulpit on Sunday morning or any other night or any other time. 
doing the work of the kingdom are not, are not just those who teach a Bible study or a Sunday school class. Doing the work of the kingdom is not just about doing things in and around the buildings we call churches. Doing the work of the kingdom is what we do day in and day out as we live our lives day in and day out. We do the work of the kingdom washing dishes. We do the work of the kingdom changing diapers. We do the work of the kingdom mowing our grass. We do the work of the kingdom when we vote for our leaders. We do the work of the kingdom when we're fixing uh, whatever it is that we're called to fix on our jobs, whether it's fixing with our hands or whether it's fixing some other way. Whatever work we're called to, we're called to do that work understanding that we are occupied with the work of the kingdom. Because you can't separate the work of the kingdom from plumbing or dirty diapers or grass that needs to be mowed. You can't separate the work of the kingdom from those things. You can't separate the work of the kingdom from a husband loving his wife and a wife respecting her husband. You can't separate the work of the kingdom from parents disciplining their children. You can't separate the work of the kingdom from any of those things. You can't. And if you do, that's sin, and we need to repent of it, and we need to turn from that sin and go back to what the Scripture teaches us. It is the business of the kingdom that we are to be occupied with. And we can think we're occupied with the business of God, but that doesn't necessarily mean we are. We need to make sure that whatever we're doing and however we're doing it lines up with the Word of God. Then we know whether our business, whether what we're occupied with is, is flowing with God's Word. And God's revelation. It was from a revelation of Christ given by the grace of God that we are able to see clearly the work and the purpose of God's kingdom. Just like Paul was finally able to see the true work of the kingdom. And he realized that everything he had done up to that point was in opposition to it. It was the grace of God that opened Paul's eyes and gave him the ability to see. Verse 13. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the, the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Christ appears to Paul at midday, at noontime, on purpose, so that the sun would be its highest point, Shining at its, its brightest. And when Jesus shows up, when the light of Christ shines upon Paul, Paul says it was brighter than even the sun. Do you know why the light of Christ has to be brighter than the sun? Because it was Christ who created the sun. There is nothing brighter than Christ. There is no light greater than the light of Christ. And the light of Christ can illuminate the darkest of places, the darkest of hearts, and the darkest of minds. There could be no mistaking what Paul was experiencing through his divine revelation given to him by the Lord. 
Christ was making himself known to Paul in a way that Paul would have to acknowledge. He could not deny it. And that what he was experiencing was indeed an appearing of the Lord to him. There would be no way to ignore or mistake the event that happened on the road to Damascus. On his way to persecute the Lord Jesus. In verse 14, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Why are you persecuting me? Do you know that Jesus is still being persecuted today? Now, he's being persecuted in obvious places in obvious ways. And we generally think about, we pray for the per, our persecuted brethren every week. And we think of persecution as people who are imprisoned or people who are martyred, killed for their faith in Christ. We think of persecution taking place in places like China or Iran or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. Um, now we got it taking place in Canada. It's getting closer to home. Uh, but persecuting Christ is not just about being cruel and mean uh, to Christians. We persecute Christ in a lot of ways. When our thoughts oppose Christ, you realize we're persecuting Christ. When our thoughts oppose his church, his ways, his word, we're persecuting Christ. We don't think of it this way. But if we are not for Christ, in Christ's own words, then you are against him. That means if I'm not working in concert with him, that means I am working against him. And that doesn't matter whether I am doing that consciously or not. I could say, well, you know, I just don't really care what people believe. If they want to believe in the God, they can believe in the God. Uh, but I'm just going to be kind of indifferent to the whole thing. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And the church, those who profess faith in Christ, have got to understand this. The world doesn't understand it because they're in unbelief. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking about the church. Those who profess to believe in Jesus need to understand that there is no middle ground. And being content to leave people and to let people exist in some neutral place that does not exist is not loving people. It's not caring about people. If we truly love people and care about people, we need to tell people the truth. And we need to understand telling the people the truth may not just hurt their feelings, they, they may actually get mad at you. How do we know that's true? Well, we're reading about a guy, that exact, exact very thing happened. They got so mad at him, they were ready to kill him just like they killed his Lord. And they didn't even want to wait for the Romans to do it. They, they were willing to sacrifice themselves to get rid of this guy. I mean, you do realize, we got to read between the lines here, 40 assassins are going to uh, attack Paul on the way back from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They understood there would be a Roman 
guards sent with him to escort the prisoner back, which means they would probably have to assault, if not kill some Romans along the way in order to kill Paul. And they understood that that would bring the wrath of Rome down upon them, but they were willing to do that because they hated not Paul, they hated Christ that much. This is what's happening in our world today. This is why we're having the issues we're having in our world today. Because men are still persecuting Christ. And they're doing it in all sorts of ways. It was not just the, per- the church Paul was persecuting. It was Jesus himself. And it's not just the church men are persecuting today. It's Jesus himself. I always laugh when people tell me, you, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's impossible. If, when someone tells me that, what that tells me is they don't even understand who Jesus is, and they certainly don't understand who the church is. It's hard to kick against the goads. This is what Jesus told Paul. It's hard to kick against the goads. A goad, an ox goad, or any kind of goad, a goad was a long stick or rod with a metal point in the end, and it was used to persuade livestock in a certain direction. And so literally, uh, Jesus is using a metaphor here. He's using an idiom here that Paul would understand. An animal that kicked against or resisted the goad risked injuring itself to the point, uh, on the point of that goad. So if, a, if an ox pushed against the point of that goad hard enough and long enough, that ox would injure himself. Thus God is warning Paul that his resistance against the divine will would result in his own injury and harm. This is an idiom indicating that it is harmful to oneself to kick against the goad of God's divine will and God's authority. In other words, God was warning that Paul was resisting the will of God to his own harm and his ultimate destruction. It was grace that sent Paul to the, gr- to the ground, humbled before the Lord. It was grace that blinded Paul's eyes so that he could see Jesus and so be saved. It was mercy and grace that met Paul on the road. He was traveling in order to administer merciless persecution to the followers of Christ. It was grace that turned the great persecutor into the great preacher and apostle. Just as it was for Paul, it is hard for us to kick against the goads. We need God's grace to turn us from our opposition. It is only by God's grace we are changed. We need change. We need repentance, reformation, and revival. We need God's grace. And so I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just as it was for Paul, it is Jesus we are opposing and persecuting. Just as Paul did not think of it that way, in fact, he thought just the opposite. Paul 
thought he was doing the Lord's work in opposing the church. And there are many today who are convinced that they are doing a good work, even the work of God. There are many today who deceive themselves into believing that there are ways that we can do God's work that does not necessarily have to agree with the Scripture. There are many today who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and do not think that they are wrong. In fact, they think they are right. They are not ignorant or uninformed. They are rebellious, suppressing God's truth. This is not the way I describe them. This is the way the Scripture describes them. And this is man's problem. We don't like what the Scripture says, and we don't like how the Scripture says things and the way the Scripture describes things. And we say things like, that's too harsh, that's too hard. Isn't there a better way we can say that? What better way could you say something other than the way God has said it? There is not a better way. Yeah, I know, but, but you know, there's just got to be a way we can soften this because, you know, it's just too hard. And thus our problem. We think we know better than God. We think we have a better way than God. We think we've got a better delivery than God. We think we can take God's word and change it or delete it and, and say things in a better way that are more easy to receive for the world. And all we're doing is changing God into the image the world wants instead of presenting God for who he is. And when we change who God is, that's not loving. That's not loving at all. The opposition of much in our culture today is simply opposition against God. The moral decay and promotion of alternate lifestyles that are not alternate but simply perverted is opposition to God. Man from the beginning rebelled against God. And he is still in rebellion today until by God's grace he receives a revelation of Christ and ceases to oppose God. It is grace that takes man from his proud opposition and rebellion against God to a humble cooperation and obedience to God. We need God's grace as much today as ever before. I think that's obvious. We need God to give us eyes to see Jesus and hearts to obey him. And when Paul is literally knocked to the ground, the voice comes to him and says, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of things which you have seen and of things which I will yet reveal to you. Listen, think about those words, but rise and stand on your feet. God could have said, yeah, there you go, Paul, you proud, arrogant persecutor. Stay down there on the ground and grovel in my presence. No. Jesus knocks him to the ground and humbles Paul, but then immediately says, rise and stand, for I have a purpose for you. Christ called Paul to rise and stand on his feet. This is the command of Christ to his church today. Rise and stand on your feet. The church has been at ease and in slumber for too long. The church has taken the blessings of the gospel for granted. We don't even recognize them anymore. 
We think everything we have, man's given it to us. We think everything we have, we've created for ourselves. To the point that we don't even recognize God in the daily affairs of life. The fact that you can go walk to a sink and flip a switch or wave your hand in front of it like in my kitchen. Still kind of weird to me. Water comes out and I can drink it and I don't have to worry about getting sick. Or I can go to my refrigerator and I can open it up and I can sit there trying to decide when I'm going to eat because I have so many choices. You think man gave you that? You think that comes from man? You think that blessing and that abundance, man gave that to you? That, my friend, is pride and arrogance. That is the result of the gospel. That is the result of God's grace and God's blessing. And the church has forgot that. Not the world. The world never knew it. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about people who profess to be followers of Jesus. We don't even realize what we've been given in Jesus Christ. We've taken it for granted. We've lived under the blessing so long, we've come to believe the blessing has come from ourselves. Our hard work did this for us. Our blood, sweat, and tears did this for us. No, it was the blood of Christ that did it for you. The people of God in America today seem to assume the blessings we have lived under as a nation have always been and will always be. They have not always been and they will not always be if the church does not rise and stand on her feet. It is possible that just like Paul, we may need to be knocked down to the ground and blinded before we will be able to see and rise up or rise and eventually see. God's word has been a warning for us. His spirit is moving. Only God knows what it will take for us to rise and stand to our feet. And God said to Paul, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which will yet be revealed to you. And the point here is that God always has a purpose. In all things, in bitter things as well as in sweet things, God's purposes are achieved in both the sweet and the bitter providence of God. It is our place to trust Him in both, no matter how sweet, no matter how bitter. God calls us to be a minister, a servant, and a witness, a martyr. That's what the word martyr means. Witness, the word servant or the word minister, speaks of one who is a servant or a subordinate. We are privileged to be called subordinate servants of God. We are privileged to be called witnesses to God. The word witness is the word martyr, and that means we are martyrs in our life or in our death. We should be witnesses in both. Christ is commanding his church to rise and stand on her feet, to be the servants and the martyrs of the things we have known and seen as well as the things we will yet see as God reveals them to his church. Paul writes in his letter to the, to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 11 through 14, Paul writes, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep. 
Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And in his letter to the church at Rome, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. In case you don't realize, you can't put armor on while you're laying down. you got to rise up, and you got to stand on your feet in order to put your armor on. The Lord is giving light to those who will walk in faithful obedience to Him and His Word. God is pouring out grace upon His church. Sin is abounding. There is no doubt about that. But what does the Scripture teach us? Where sin abounds, grace does abound much more. And as God's people rise up and stand up and cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, we will see that grace abounding more and more and more. It is time for the people of God to courageously rise up and take their place as ministers, as witnesses of Jesus Christ according to God's purpose. And then God tells Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I will deliver you. Don't be fearful, church. Don't look around and be fearful about what's happening because God's promise, not just to Paul, but to all of his children is, I will deliver you. God knows who we need to be delivered from and he will deliver us. The promise given to Saul that day he was humbled before the Lord on the road to Damascus is the same promise he gives to us. I will deliver you. And when we read the record of Paul's life, we know that he was eventually executed in Rome. Does that mean God didn't deliver him? Absolutely not. Well, he delivered him all the way up until then, but then God failed him. That's stinking thinking. Jesus never said we would escape this life apart from death. In fact, the scripture is very clear. It's appointed unto man to die once, then the judgment. Jesus told his disciples numerous times in numerous places, you will be killed. But don't fear those who have the power to kill your body because they have no power over your soul. In fact, fear him who has power to cast your soul into hell. That's the one you need to fear. Don't fear man who can take your mortal life. Fear God who controls your eternal life. As C.S. Lewis said, I'll remind you again, there are no mortal people. Everyone is immortal and everyone is going to live somewhere for eternity. It's not a question of if you will. It's the question is where you will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verses 24 through 33, I'm not going to read it to you, but you can go there and read it. And Paul gives you the laundry list of what he experienced in this life. And it sounds like God didn't deliver him very well. But that's not Paul's point. Paul understood exactly how God had delivered him. God had delivered him from his sin. God had delivered him from darkness. Paul wasn't worried about what men did to him, how many times he got beat, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was stoned to death and left for dead. 
Paul wasn't worried about that because Paul said the worst they can do is kill my mortal body, but God has given me eternal life. Paul wasn't worried about that. That's why he calls him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, light afflictions. He said the light afflictions of this world are momentary and they are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that's being worked in us through those light afflictions. Paul wasn't complaining in 2 Corinthians. He was boasting in the Lord. Paul suffered, but Paul never was forsaken by the Lord. The promise that God would deliver him for, from Jew and Gentile alike was a faithful promise. Paul didn't belong to Jews. He didn't belong to Gentiles. Paul belonged to Jesus. And no man on earth and no demon in hell can pluck him, nor can they pluck you from God's hand. It was not man, but Christ who commanded Paul's destiny. It is the same for us in Christ today. It is not man, not even ourself, who commands our destiny. It is Jesus. Christ has redeemed us by his blood, and he will deliver us from all that would seek to pluck us out of his hand. In Christ, we have been delivered, and we are secure in him. God sends us forth into this world with that promise intact. I will deliver you. Be courageous. Jesus commands our destiny, and he is Lord of all. And then finally, the Lord says, I have sent you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God sends us just like he sent Paul. To turn them from darkness to light. And just as Paul needed his eyes open, we and all men need our eyes open to the light and the truth as it is in Jesus. In order to turn men from darkness to light, we need the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, seen where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. And as we have turned from darkness to light, God sends us to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. And when we are in darkness, we are in the power of Satan. And to be turned from darkness to light is to be delivered from the power of Satan over to the power of God, delivered by the power of God. It is then in being turned from darkness to light that we receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Jesus told Paul, I'm sending you that they would be sanctified by faith in Christ. In Christ and his light, we are those who are sanctified. Sanctification is how we live our life. Sanctification is lived out and demonstrated by how we live our life. Justification is what is gifted to us by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus justifies us before the Father. 
But in our salvation, we're not just justified, we are also to be sanctified. That means our life is to count for something. Our life is to look like something. Our life is to make a difference now and for eternity, not just for us. Do you see what Jesus is commanding Paul to do? This was not just about Paul. Paul didn't go, wow, now I know, now I'm happy, I can die and go to heaven. No, Paul committed the rest of his life to make sure that men were sanctified by faith in Christ. He spent the rest of his life occupied with the business of the kingdom of God. That is exactly how we are to spend our life, no matter what your occupation or your vocation is. To be sanctified is to be set apart, consecrated, and made holy. We are sanctified by faith in Christ. We are set apart and called holy for the work of the kingdom, for the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God sends us so that men will ultimately be sanctified as they are called by the gospel to trust in Christ. God sends us that men may be saved and the Lord would be glorified. This is why God sent Paul. This is why God is still sending men today. This is why God sends us. We have gathered here, assembled here, to be equipped and sent out there. Because God is still commanding his church to go, therefore, and make disciples. Amen. And we should not be fearful in that endeavor. Because if Jesus is Lord and he has conquered sin and death, there is no reason for us to be fearful in this world of anyone or anything. Let's get ready and come to the Lord's table. Jesus gives us a reminder every week when we come to this table of why we can be courageous, why we must be faithful, why we can have assurance and certainty that it is not man, but it is Jesus who commands our destiny. And it is Jesus who made a way for us where there was no way. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And every time we eat that bread and drink that cup, we are proclaiming his victory. Church, as you trust in Jesus, come to this table and let us proclaim the victory we have in Jesus. Let's all stand. Well, the message is pretty simple today. Jesus said it to Paul, rise up and stand on your feet. Rise up, stand up, and go boldly to courageously proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord and that he is the only Savior. Love 
men enough to tell them the truth that by God's grace they would be saved from their sin and escape the destruction they are destined for apart from Jesus. Amen.